Okay, Erev Tov, everyone. Today we are going to study Parshas Vayigash, and depending on how much uh, ground we cover, we'll see how many topics we get to. Uh, there's really two fundamental questions we are going to discuss. And if you look in the first source, as Yaakov is about to descend down to Egypt, the Torah writes, V'es Yehuda sholach lefanav el Yosef. And, Ye- and Yaakov sent Yehuda before him to Yosef. Lahoros lefanav Goshna. To point the way before him to Goshan. V'yavo artsa Goshan. And he came, and they, when they came to the area of Goshan. So what is this idea that he sends Yehuda lahoros? So Rashi explains... Before the family arrives, the whole entourage arrives, he sends Yehuda there first. And the Midrash explains what does the word Lahoros Lafanov mean? Lahoros can mean to point the way. Lahoros comes also from the word Lahora to teach. So the Midrash says, Talmud, to prepare a house of study. Shemitam Misham that teaching of Torah will come from this place. So, what the Rashi is bringing from the Medrash is before the Jewish people come down to Egypt, Yehuda was given the job of establishing a yeshiva so there'll be not one minute of time wasted when the Jews go into Gaulus, they will already have a place to study Torah. And that is a very important message because when the Jews go into Gaulus, we have to be able to have a strong connection to our Torah, or we will assimilate into the country that we are going into. So now what is the question we should be asking at this time? What does it take to establish a yeshiva? You just snap your finger and it's there? What does it take? Everything. Give me a couple examples. Of money. Money. What else? You have to, to lead the Well, someone to lead the yeshiva. Yeah, there's someone to lead the yeshiva. Students. Building. You need students. You need a building. Okay, now who is the most qualified of the 12 children of Yaakov to do that job? His father. Who? One sec. What did what'd you say? I said Yisachar. Who? Yisachar. Yisachar? Yeah. He, he could be students. Okay. Why are you saying Yisachar? Because you know he's, he learns Torah? Okay. Okay. But what else do you need? What did you say? Yosef. Yosef. Why did you say Yosef? He is in charge. He has the means. He's in charge. He has the means. Now, he's what, a great planner. What's, he's, he's a great planner. What else? Or Binyamin. What, I don't know the what is it? You, the first thing you need is money. Yeah. So Yosef has access to money? Yes. Maybe there'll be some zoning issues? Yeah, with a strike of a pen. He, he, already, he already has arranged that they're going to Goshen. That was his decision. You think he could find a nice location for the yeshiva for them? Yes. Okay, so this is the first question. It's, it, it, this question gets strengthened as we go ahead. So the question is, why does he have to send Yehuda at all 
Yosef was already there and he has all the means to accomplish that. Now, if you look in the next source, the Gemara Neoma says, throughout the days of our patriarchs, the maintenance of a house of study did not cease. And they give examples of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, they all were studying Torah. So what might be a reason why you could think, well, maybe Yosef has the financial wherewithal. But what other criteria would you need to found a yeshiva? Time. You need what? Time. And he's got another job. Time? He can arrange his time. Give jobs to busy people. Right? I think the expression goes. All, all he needs to do is delegate. Delegate. He's rabbi's teacher, somebody who teaches them. Okay, but we're talking about setting up the yeshiva, right? Let's talk in low base town. Because it was Betim, 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 was in the Judah's land. So Betim was in the Judah's land. That's already after the fact. Yeah. We have to go before the fact. You can't give me proofs after. We have to, we're starting before. Uh, they didn't exist at that time. It's you needed something to learn from. Well, they didn't have books. But m- maybe, maybe you think Yosef himself is not very learned. So, so Rabbi, now on, this, on this point, then when Benjamin and uh, um, Yosef meet, when they cry each other, he cries yeah. for the destruction of the second, uh, first temple, he cries for the destruction. Why are we thinking about that then? If you're not thinking ahead, then why are we thinking about that then? Listen, that's that's ahead. That's one thing. But right now they have to learn Torah. Right? It's two separate things. They have to learn Torah right now. So again, who is qualified? Now let's take a look. What about Yosef? Is he a scholar? Yes. Yeah. How do you know? He yes, no, and how do you know? His father. His father. Look at source four. He was called a Ben Zakunim. Says Rashi. From the measure he was a wise son to him, all that he had learned from shame and Aver, he taught him. Wait, what, before he was before until he was seventeen, Yaakov taught him all the Torah. It's a long time before this, though. And the other, the other brothers. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's a, not a bad point. But let's just look at this. What was so special about the studying of the yeshiva of shame and Aver? I live in the diaspora. That's how how to survive in the diaspora. Yeah. Exactly what Yaakov learned from Shem and Avert, how to learn to survive by loving, he taught that to Yosef. And he needed that in Mitzrayim. And it seemed to work. Okay, now did he remember the Torah? Now he's saying it was 22 years ago, so let's look in Source 5. Let's look at Source 5. Well, first, um, when the brothers told Yaakov that Yosef was alive, he wasn't so excited. He wasn't so sure what kind of Yosef is it. But then Rashi brings, well, they said all the words of Yosef. So what did he send them? He reminded him of the last thing they studied 22 years ago, the laws of the red heifer. So he hadn't forgotten any of the Torah that he learned. So therefore, we can safely assume that Yosef, oh, wow, a whole family affair. Hashem. <laughs> wow. I get to... Get to see Riva twice during amazing. Okay, so anyway, so it's a safe to assume that Yaakov would follow this pattern Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Yosef. And Rashi in source six says, 
that when he saw the wagons, Vatechi Ruach Yaakov, Yaakov's spirit was revived because the Shekhinah had departed from him for 22 years and now the Shekhinah come back. So the question at the end of the day is why couldn't Yosef have established the Torah center for his father? Right? It, it would seem so easy for this to happen. And I mean, could it be that Yaakov wanted to give another brother a job specifically to this? Maybe Yosef could have done it. So the question is, why would he do that? Maybe he got because uh, he's going to be the leader later. Yehuda will be, um, and Yosef's only the leader when we're not in Israel, and Yehuda will be the leader later. So maybe we need but is not Yosef the leader now? Maybe this is uh, kind of Shlomo's issue about looking forward. Yeah, but, but just, here's the issue: they have to survive now. Now, we're opening a yeshiva now because the Jews are coming down now. They have to survive now. And they need that kind of education, the surviving and, knowledge. And they need to survive in the Golas. Yeah. Right? So, again, you know, and, and Yaakov, I mean, Yosef, he's been there for 22 years. Uh, um, yeah, well, yeah, he's been there for 22 years. He's been at least as the leader for nine years, so he hasn't been looking from the perspective of a jail. But for nine years, he knows everything uh, that, that's going on over there. Well, maybe the Jews, and he's a great scholar. Maybe the Jews, and he's shown his capability to succeed under great stress, which nobody's been proven to do yet. Well, perhaps that the students who will learn there won't view him as Jewish as... Yeah. Yehuda, because he's part of Egyptian culture. Maybe he got mingled with the Jewish, maybe he lost some... Uh... So are you suggesting that Yosef has lost his spiritual levels? No, but maybe no. he'll be viewed that way. I'm not saying he has, but perception might be that way. Not, not lost, but okay. he was there for such a know. long time. Maybe but some let's put it this way. Right now, he's proving to them that he's Jewish. He proved that he remembers all his Torah. He is proving that he, his mitos are incredible because he's choosing not to take revenge on his brothers. He kind of had some of these issues with Moshe Rabbeinu as well, right? It's what? He kind of had these same sort of issues with Moshe Rabbeinu. Right? So he grew up in the palace. He was viewed as Egyptian. Aaron who had to do some of the... Yeah, but at the end of the day, Moshe was the one who was picked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Rabbi, what more possibility is because Egypt being a place of Avodah Zara and all, maybe probably that's why... Yeah, but Yosef was able to show that he lived there and is not affected by it at all. Yeah, which made Yaakov very happy. He made, and and the, oh, the whole Shekhinah came back because yeah. of him. Yeah. All right, so that, so that I gave you a chance. That's <laughs> okay. And we blew it. No, you didn't blow it. You didn't blow it. We're, we're discussing it. So we've got to uh, understand the different spiritual levels um, between Yaakov, Yosef, and the other brothers. Okay? And what was the main difference? And this will shed light onto a lot of issues in this storyline over here. Okay, now... Everyone in the family, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and the children were all shepherds. Now, were they just happen to be shepherds or did they choose such an occupation? The answer is they chose such an occupation. 
What's the benefit of that occupation, being a shepherd? It's what? A little louder. To learn, right? learn, okay, or better, you are <clears throat> traveling. You are avoiding contact yeah. with the day-to-day realities of the world, mm-hmm. right? That minimizes you're just with the sheep, and then you know the one time we have to sell the sheep or whatever. But so you you can learn and not be very distracted from your divine service. Okay, that's what they chose, and that's a you know you can meditate and you can. Do a lot of things, right? And you're on your own. Yosef, obviously from his youth onward, was not a shepherd. And after he was sold as a slave, he was running Potiphar's affairs. And Unculus even mentions that the day he came to the house of Potiphar, when no one else was there, it says he went to check the account books. So uh, he obviously was very busy taking care of the books and running the house. And... Um, and then certainly when he became the viceroy of Egypt, as you were mentioning, that the whole country relies on his uh, ability to take care of things. He had to take care of the affairs of the land. Okay. And how did he survive? And the answer is, and this is a very important idea to understand, if you want to know who was on a higher level of everybody, of the patriarchs, that early society, Yosef was on a higher level and connection to Hashem more than everybody. More than Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and the brothers. How do we know this? Well, uh, all of them, they experienced a great revelation of Hashem, but they were still separated from the world. And they only could understand Hashem as he is enclothing his reality in the world. And that's something we've been talking about in the afternoon class for quite a while. And we'll just bring it out a little bit more. But the challenge of serving Hashem, obviously, in the world is the physical world doesn't show anything about God. That's the general challenge we all have. How do you feel? How do you get connected to God when you don't see God and everything seems so not God. So they were able to uh, come to that understanding that God is the source of the reality of what's in this world. And God enclothes himself in, and manifests himself in this world. But that bond, as strong as it may be, it's tenuous because the outside world lives different than that and could have some effect on them. So they felt they had to live far away from other people to hold on to that connection. Yosef was on a much higher level of revealed godliness. So we're going to share two terms, spend a couple minutes on it. I'm not going to expect you to totally understand it, but to get an idea. There's different levels of perceptions of Hashem in the world. And that you can have very low levels. And this could all be with Orthodox Jews, by the way. We're not talking about secular Jews. There's many Orthodox Jews that do a lot of mitzvahs, but they really don't feel any connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now, there's certain understandings that, yeah, Hashem runs the world. Hashem is the king and everything. But this world is a physical world. There's natural cause and effect that happens in this world. God may have created it. God may even be involved in this world. 
But when I look at this world, I see physical things and I relate to these things in a physical way. And God's the boss and I try to listen to what the boss tells me. And that I say would be most Jews look at their Yiddishkeit as that. We could throw in a few other nice things where the chosen people were supposed to show there's a God in this world and all these things. But yet, from theory to practice, it's a different story. Meaning to say, yes, that's what I'm told, but still God is very distant from us. He's the God far away. He runs the show. He's the king. Totally, I agree with that. I accept the yoke of heaven upon me. I will do what God tells me to do. But this physical world looks very real in and of itself. And now the challenge is, there are all kinds of tests in life. And of course, you understand that God tells you to do certain things and tells you not to do certain things. So how come we find ourselves doing Averos? <laughs> you know, everybody sins, right? So how do we do that? Because the physical world seems very real. Temptation. And therefore, either temptation or it skews our view of things because when you, you know, just, I, I, I don't want to pick any, it could be any example, but there's a lot of conflict in our lives. There's what Hashem wants from us and then what the world wants from us. You, you get pulled from work for certain expectations. God wants certain things from you and you feel conflicted and you try to listen to God, but sometimes it's, it's hard. And we make mistakes because the physical world looks so real and and God is sort of imposing his will upon us and sometimes the other temptations at the moment you know are stronger than our conscious reality there's a God in this world that that's would you say I've kind of summed it up for most people now what would you call a tzaddik a tzaddik is able to perceive more God's reality that's manifest within the world so I'm going to give this example to make it real clear. Uh, let's take a beam of white light. Beam of white light. There's no question that it's a beam of white light. No question about it. So let's say you got the beam of white light coming from right to left. And right here you have a prism. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the prism is all kinds of different colors. Now the question is, if you're over here... What do you see? You see different colors. Now, you could say, you could say these different colors come by themselves. Because you're only here, you're not even realizing there's a prism. You just see colors. So you live in this part of the world, you see these colors, and then you're told that there's a God who's telling you how to use these colors. Okay, so... I can believe it, and, but that God is very far away. Now, a tzaddik will say, no, no, no. The tzaddik knows there's a white light. He knows there's a white light. And he knows the white light is creating the different colors of the prism. And the Kabbalistic term for that is called memale kol almin. Hashem fills the worlds. Meaning to say that a tzaddik realizes that everything in this world, this looks like a cup of water. No, it's the will of Hashem. 
So the tzaddik feels a greater connection to Hashem in this world. And uh, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, they reach that kind of a level where it's not just there's these colors and they have something with God, but they knew there was a white light that is shooting uh, into the prism and it's creating these colors and these colors are filled with the white light. Okay. So now, so now you have a better understanding of it, but still, you got to be careful. You can't hang around lots of people who say that this is its own light because you could be affected by them. So you kind of stay away, stay with the sheep. Stay with the sheep so you keep that focus correct. All right, that's and that's a tzaddik. That's a tzaddik. Yeah. Does the tzaddik like? Are you born with that? You just know that, or you worked? That's a good question. There are some who are born with it. Some have to work with it. Some have. Some people have "quote unquote" bigger souls. Some have smaller souls. Uh, it is something that people are capable of reaching. It takes a lot of work. Okay. So some people have it easier. Uh, obviously, if you're not going to work on it, you're not. You're not going to be able to keep it. And it's something that, that is attainable if you spend a lot of time working on it. That's, anyone can achieve this understanding, but you have to work a lot on that and do a lot of avoda, which uh, could be too much for the average person. But a real tzaddik knows this. A real tzaddik knows this. Okay, so you can figure out what else is there to know. Hmm. Well, Yosef is on a higher level. Because Yosef's intellectual capacity puts him on the other side of the prison. He developed such a clarity that he, Mamish, can, as if he sees the white light going into the prison. And now, anything that's on the other side of the prison, in his mind, is a joke. Imagine, if you're, if you're, if you're understanding the world on this side of the prison, or on this side of the prison. Now that takes a lot more effort, a lot more work. And that expression is called sovev kalalman, like the light that surrounds the world. It's like you, you've brought yourself to an intellectual understanding that, the, that God is the light that's cr- going through the prism, that's creating the other colors. It's not that you're in the world of the other colors. You're consciously, cognitively in the world of the light. And now when you're looking at that light, you know that until the light hits the prism, there's nothing on the other side of the prism. And now when you're living... And let's put it this way. Let's say he has a passport to be on both sides of the prison. To be able to intellectually know that there's two sides of the prison at the same time. Now, we can... Uh, the tzaddik is still on one side of the prison, but he has such a strong capacity of understanding that his intellect says, these colors can't come by themselves. There's got to be a light that comes into them. And that fills them. And when you look at it, the tzaddik sees it's the Ratzon Hashem is in there. But there's a higher level that says, <laughs> sure it is the Ratzon Hashem, but guess what? Before we come to the other side, there's nothing but the white light. And that already is, so then what does it matter who you're next to your whole life? 
Once that unmitigated truth is true to you, could you believe a word that anybody else would ever say to you? And this is the Mida of Yosef, which we mentioned last week, the Mida of Yesod, the ninth Svira, which is being able to have a handle of this world and the next world the same time. To totally have this deep understanding of HaKadosh Baruch who is this light, and everything in this world is like totally a mirage, just the will of HaKadosh Baruch Okay, now that is a much higher level. And Yosef was the highest of levels. Now, what can happen when a person's on that level and he has to deal with other religious people? can't relate to them, or they can't relate to you. He can relate to them very nicely, but what do people think about a person like that? A person like that you know, like you have, you have Sadiqim in the Gemara like this. Sadiqim in the Gemara, uh, Rabbi Yochanan, he would stand right, imagine ladies, you're coming out of the mikvah. Okay? And there's a tzaddik right standing there as you're coming out of the water. And that tzaddik is there, so you will look at him and you will have children like him. Because the first thing you see you go out of the mikvah has a big impact on you. But, yeah, he was handsome too. But he's there and you're there with no clothes on. So the student said, Rebbe, I mean, how do you explain this? He said, in my eyes, they're white geese. Now, you've got to be careful with that kind of statement because people could ascribe certain negative things to such a person. But if you know that all that woman is just the other side of the prison, and he mamish knows there's just, there's just white light. It's just a prism of color. Now, 99.9 people cannot avoid being... Uh, um, um, directed by the laws of the Shulchan Aruch. The laws of Shulchan Aruch do not allow a man to see a woman who's not properly clothed. The Shulchan Aruch is for regular people. Someone like Rabbi Yochanan, who is really otherworldly, and he, it's like nothing for him. You know, it's almost, Lahavdol, why is a doctor allowed to, ex- a male doctor can examine a female? Why? Because he's looking at her clinically. Yeah. He doesn't see her as an attractive woman. He sees her as a biological uh, combination of flesh and bones and molecules and this and that. And he's looking to find where's health or not health, God forbid. So, and he's trained to look at people like that. Now, if they actually live up to that or not, I don't know. But that's the way it should be. But a tzaddik can really... So, so now, how, do, how are people like this perceived by the regular masses? Dangerous people. If it, and now you understand the whole story with Yosef and the brothers the whole time. Yosef is doing all kinds of things that nobody did. Avram didn't do it. Yitzchak didn't do it. Yaakov didn't do it. Nobody did this. We all stayed away from everybody. Yosef, on the other hand, he says, you know, I could have a nice hairstyle. And I think we have to be hang around the non-Jews so we can influence them. Now, is this something that you should practice at home? No. 
Is it something that Yosef can do? Yes. Now this is what they just could not believe because he was on a level that just transcended everybody. And he was telling them this. He was telling them this about the dreams he had where he's talking about the sun and the stars and the moon. Well, first he's talking about the wheat. The wheat shows that we have to be involved in the physical world. Now wheat, think about this. What does that have to do? Brothers are shepherds. Where comes a dream from wheat? Greek. I better say, but shepherds don't dream about wheat. They dream about sheep. But wheat is commerce, is business. He's thinking about business. Think of how we're going to affect the world. And then he's thinking about the stars and the sun and the moon and their spirituality. Yosef was a, we'll call him the spiritual renaissance man. And spiritual renaissance men are viewed as threats to the religion as often they are. As often they are. And that's why he is talking a talk that nobody has yet talked. Yaakov went to Lavan, but he went there with trepidation. And he was, didn't want to go there. And he was forced to go there. And he survived that. Yosef, and this more has to do with the other parts, is saying, you know, it's time. It's time for us to really impact on the world. And if you, if you see where the light's coming from, you're not fooled by any of this. And you see this over and over. Was Abraham at that he, level? Because he also... Abraham was not at that level. Even though he went out. He, he, he went out, but uh, also would be, was still a shepherd. His primary uh, business was being a shepherd, okay? And uh, he would tend to the flocks, and people would come to his domain, and he wouldn't go to their domain. That was always, the patriarchs always stayed in their domain. They did not feel they have to go out, so to speak. And Yosef, just from the dreams, is already saying, we have to start influencing the world. We've got to, we've got to move forward. And because Yosef, you know, Ultimately, is the one who's going to take us into the Gullahs. And you see how successful he is in doing this, how, how he's able to change a savage country, Egypt, into one that's a little more civilized. So that this is what his, his, and this is really what's going to happen when Mashiach comes. So he's a man ahead of his time, and therefore people are having a lot of trouble with him. And that's why all these issues came up with him. But the truth of the matter is, he was so much more greater than all of them. And they couldn't understand the Yiddishkeit this way. Okay. So now, with all that we've said, so wait a minute. So it seems he should be the one to run the yeshiva, shouldn't he? <laughs> so so Lubavitcher Rebbe gives the following explanation. And he says, there's nothing wrong with Yosef at all. As we would say, Yosef had a shlichus by Hashem. He fulfilled the shlichus 100%. There's not any fault with Yosef. That's why it's called Yosef HaTzadik. It's called Yosef HaTzadik. He never sinned. In, in a real way, he never sinned when there was plenty of opportunity to sin. But now we're talking about something else. We're talking about building a yeshiva. And we're talking about building a yeshiva. We're talking about Torah study. And we talk about Torah study. Different principles apply. And when we talk about Torah, what is most important 
is that the person be one with the Torah he studies. The Talmud has an expression, I think I have it somewhere, I think in source 8, Torasa umnaso. His Torah is his livelihood. He has no other concern than Torah. There is nothing else in the world except Torah. And let's just look a little bit from the Tanya in chapter 5 when he talks about the study of Torah. It's a long chapter. I just took a section from it. Talking about someone who's studying Torah properly. He says he then actually comprehends and grasps the will and wisdom of Hashem. We're not talking about just any wisdom. You're talking about divine wisdom, which is beyond the human understanding at first blush. No one can grasp this. No one can grasp Hashem's will. No one can grasp his wisdom, except when they, God's will and wisdom, clothe themselves in halachos. God clothes his wisdom in the Torah. Okay? And that's one way of understanding the Torah. And it means God's intellect is clothed within the Torah. God's intellect is beyond any human being's perception, but he encloses it in halacha with an ox goring a sheep and things like that, which seem, you know, relatively easy, but it's much more deeper reality of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And this is how Hashem brings halacha. You notice halacha always deals with physical things in the world. There's no such thing as halacha without physical things in the world. And how God enclosed his, his, his essence within the world of halacha that deals with everything that's physical in this world. And as we say, the Zohar says, Yisrael The Jewish people, Hashem and the Torah, are one. The greatest closeness to Hashem is through the study of Torah. And when you're studying the Torah, and that is such a perfect um, intellect of Hashem, it needs 100% focus. And any little bit away from that, you can understand a lot of it, but not all of it. It's, it's like a perfect wisdom. And for the person to reach that level, it takes tremendous effort. And the Talmud gives us all kinds of uh, discussions about that. For example, in source number nine, the rabbis of the Talmud, like we have no idea, you know, we think, oh, you learn Torah, you know some Torah, you're a big scholar. We, we have no idea what scholars are. You know, Abai in the Gemara, if his foster mother would ask him to do a little thing, can you just uh, order, go to the well and draw a pitcher of water? He would do it. But he says, you're messing up my learning. Different rabbis talked about if they were in a place where there were mosquitoes and get a little mosquito bite, it, it took away from the Torah. Torah study, to really be at one with the infinite wisdom, needs a thousand percent focus and effort. This is something that most people have a lot of trouble with this. We figure, what's a good student? You learn for an hour, then you take a break for 10 minutes. You learn for another hour, take a break for 10 minutes. You learn for another hour, take a break for 10 minutes. That's a really good student. That's a really good student. <laughs> Usually it's the other way around. Learn for 10 minutes, you, take you, a break for You hour. talk about great tzaddikim. They could sit in front of a safer. There's all kinds of stories. You know, it's one server, one great rabbi. He went up, you know, they used to have little ladders to get to the books yeah, yeah. in the libraries. Yeah. So he's on the ladder. He has the book in his hand. It's 11 o'clock at night. 
the students say goodnight, and he's looking. They come back at 7 a.m., he's still there, on the ladder, just 400 pages further out in the book. Okay, you, you gotta understand what that means. You gotta understand what people were doing. The high I mean, level. There, there's all kinds of there's all kinds of people people who would who would uh, would have to get a uh, would find a new safer and you could and no one owns swarm you couldn't own swarm so what do you do you borrow it for a night and you go from cover to cover in eight hours you just read the whole safer and you memorize it and you know it. Okay, I'm not suggesting that's to make us, uh, you know, uh, disappointed that we're not even close to this. That's not the point over here. But when we're talking about to study God's Torah and to really be a teacher of Torah the way it's meant to be, you have to be totally absorbed. And there could be nothing else on your mind, period. That's the biggest challenge in society today is attention span. Uh, yes, but... What's fascinating is if you don't have any of this modern technology, the pure mind is able to do what it can do. And that's why you'll find Haredim in Yerushalayim, in B'nai Brak, in Lakewood, in certain areas. They don't have any of that stuff. And all they do is study. And they can do it for hours, like hours. It's incredible. And when you can do that, you can be one with the information. Acquiring divine wisdom is not just uh, looking it up, and looking in an art scroll, and reading a little bit, and giving a class, you know, anybody can do that. But, uh, but to really understand the message of Hashem, you have to be one with it. And if you're involved with anything else, even if you're doing something benign, it will minimize your connection with the Torah. You have certain gedolim. <coughs> We're talking about really gedolim now. We're not, you know, who their wives knew. Their whole role is that my husband shouldn't waste any time from studying Torah. Now, it didn't mean, okay, part of studying Torah is you learn with your children. I mean, obviously, you have to do mitzvahs. You have to come home. You have to make kiddush. You have to do those kinds of things. But think, think about in, in a, a typical day what a nice Jewish man has to do has to spend hours, you know, take the car and change the snow tires. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. Uh, go, f uh, go be with the accountant to work on your taxes. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. That's fine. You want to, but you're not going to be the leader of a nation in Torah if you're spending your time on that. You can't. You have to be totally focused on this. That's it. There can be nothing else because the divine wisdom is so divine, you can't have anything else involved with that. So now, um, it's, it's interesting. For example, um, we have the four species on Sukkot. Okay? Now, you know, every species represents another time of Jew, right? So, the lula, for example, is a Jew who it, it, who, it has uh, taste but no smell. So it's a Jew who studies Torah but is not the biggest in mitzvah observance. Okay? And you got others there. You got the Esro, which is amazing in Torah and amazing in mitzvah observance. Okay, which one do we, what bracha do we make on the four species? Al Natilas Lulav. Why? 
What? Because the focus is on the Torah study. Talking about Torah and nothing else. It's pure Torah. Okay? And we're not saying he doesn't do any mitzvahs, but if he's been doing mitzvahs all day long, then his Torah will be compromised. That's all. And we need to have that. Now, we don't need everybody to be that way, but we need to have certain people like that. It's interesting, if you look in the Shulchan Aruch Rav from the Balatanya, when he talks about Stud, you know, a lot of people think that Hasidim aren't, aren't very big in Torah learning. Uh, that's the furthest thing from the truth. They always, even Hasidim, they say you have to be strong in Torah. You have to be strong in Torah. But, uh, it's, but since they do so many other things, people focus on the other things and they ignore the Torah concept. But the, 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 first, uh, the first Rebbe, he, he differentiates between the, sto- Torah, the study of Torah before marriage and after marriage. And after marriage, he means not the first year, second, but once you start having a few kids, you say, we're worrying about the family, this and that. As he says, that the Torah learning after that time is not going to be the same as before. That's why in certain yeshivas, let's say in um, Chavetz Chaim and other yeshivas, and even in Europe, a bachar did not get gold. He wasn't interested in getting married till his late 20s. Why? Because once you have a wife and kids, forget it. You cannot concentrate that much. I know, I know, my son, Lachanan, he didn't go out till he was 26. I think, or 24, whatever. It, like, they, you had to be in the Shiva a number of years before you could go out. That's it. In other places, you know, I think it's engaged at 20, 21. I'm not saying one's bad, one's the other. But there is something to be said about your connection to learning Torah when they don't have all these distractions. You know? I forgot which great tzaddik. There was another tzaddik who was one of the Meneritz, so I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was the stifler. I don't remember. The wife did everything, like everything. And he just studied Torah. And the kids get married. All he had to do, the wife said, you come at this time for the wedding. That's it. So he's learning. They said, okay, it's time. It's time to go to the wedding. So he goes to the... uh, to the coat room, and it's a little bit hard to uh, put the coat on. He goes, Oi, Tsar Gittelbonim, the pain of raising children. <laughs> okay? So, okay. No idea, no idea. Again, that's not for us, but, but, but there have to be people who can do this. Okay, that's why the Levim, that's why, what did Hashem do? And this is the, the one point I'm trying to bring across. How important is it? that we should have a group of people that have no responsibilities of making Parnassah, but only studying Torah. Well, God mandated that with the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi was not allowed to have a portion of land in Eretz Yisrael. So why? Because their job was to be the spiritual leaders. Their job was to study Torah and be involved in the work in the base of Migdash, but primarily, but they only worked two weeks of the year, so what were they doing the other 50 weeks? They were studying Torah and teaching it to others. And therefore, for them to have a farm and to be busy with that, they wouldn't have time for this. So therefore, everyone has to give them. So therefore, people who, who look um, negatively at people who say, want to spend my whole life studying Torah, okay, now again, if the person is sincere, well, that's exactly, there has to be a certain amount of people like this. Why? Because you have to be able to produce 
great Torah leadership, because without that, we won't have it. And that's what I believe the source number 10 tells us. After the destruction of Esamigdash, Hashem only manifests itself, so to speak, in the four cubits of Torah law. In other words, the only thing that really is going to hold us as a people is Torah. And, and if you don't, even if you, well, even with prophecy, if you don't have Torah, it's not going to hold you together. Because that is our strongest connection to Kaddish Baruch Hu. And why is that so? Because the Torah is Emes. Torah is the ultimate truth. And guess what? The truth has to apply itself in different ways in different places. You can say, what's the big deal? We got the rules, just memorize them. The answer is, but situations in life will create new situations that you need a basic knowledge of Torah so you'll know how to adjust when situations are not the same. For example, what makes a difference between a good doctor and a great doctor? Insurgents. Well, how can you tell if he's really great? And what do the surgeons supposedly spend the most time working on? What to do when things don't go right. That's the most important thing. When things go right, anybody can be a great surgeon. You're doing the surgery, and in the middle of surgery, the guy's getting a heart attack. What do you do then? You're doing a surgery, and you found something that they didn't know about. Now, all of a sudden, that's the great surgeon. Well, they didn't teach me that. Well, you got to know how to adjust. You got to know how to thinking on your feet. So, and and that's and and that takes a lot. That's the the greatness of, of a really amazing surgeon, mm-hmm. right? And he does it in a way that will make less complications like that. So, great tzaddikim, we get new challenges. How do we know how to address these new challenges? Well, you got to go back into that Torah, and the Torah will address it, but you have to have such an intimate knowledge of it to be able to understand what's going on over here. And therefore, the Rambam says in Source 11, I, we don't have the tribe of Levi anymore. So the famous Rambam, one of the most famous Rambams at the end of the laws of Shemitah and Yovel, after he discusses how the tribe of Levi do not have any portion of land because the Levim are Hashem's portion, so to speak, and Hashem is their portion. So he says it doesn't only apply to the tribe of Levi, but anyone who wants to have a philanthropic spirit and they want to serve Hashem completely can be like the Levi, and he is called Kotche Kadoshim, holiest of holies, and that is someone that we should be very um, uh, honor such people. Rambam is very clear that if a person feels he can really do this, he should, he must. Okay, so now that we have seen this, so now the question is based on what we've explained, so why is Yaakov sending Yehuda and not Yosef? Because as great as Yosef is, and Yosef does his shlichos, he is able to see life on the other side of the prison but he still will not have a masterful command of Torah. Because Torah is applying the unique situations in life on this side of the prism, where you have to have a certain Torah judgment, where Yosef is able to know clearly that this is all a figment of my imagination, and it's all you know, from coming from Hashem. 
But then that judgment, though, you don't necessarily have unless you're totally connected with Torah. So although in regard to Yosef's own personal mission, there was nothing lacking in Yosef's divine service, he could not be the paradigm of Torah study because he, as genius as he was, but he still would have to spend a lot of time with everything else. And he couldn't be the one to establish the yeshiva. Yehuda, who was the shepherd, who lived apart from worldly concerns, could establish a yeshiva and a Torah center in Egypt where students would not be distracted by other concerns. So what really you have is the following. And this, uh, did I put it? I didn't put it there. This is the, the, the take-home message. Yosef is the ideal model of Jewish life, of changing the world. But Yosef must be educated by Yehuda to take that Torah and be the model of that Torah. It's two points. There's the pure, unmitigated Torah. That is a very difficult thing to have. And once you have it, and you can get this sense of seeing things from the other side of prism, now you're unstoppable. But if you, even if you see things on the other side of the prism, but you don't have the total will of Hashem understood under certain circumstances, you may say, this is all, you know, Narishkeit, but you still have to know how to deal with the Narishkeit. You know, what is the best decision? You're not, you're not going to be swayed to do Averos. But there's questions of decisions that have to be made. And that already is not a question of only being swayed. Let me give you an interesting example of this. And uh, it's a bit of historical. Uh, you know, certain books I read 40 years ago, so I decided to read them again. So uh, one book is an English translation of Simcha Raz's book of the life of Rav Kook. Rav Yitzchok, the first chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael, passed away in 1935, who I would say is one of the most misunderstood gedolim of the last century. And on the other hand, Rav Yosef Chaim Sonnenfeld, who was from the quote-unquote Haredi um, Yerushalmis who had lived for hundreds of years coming uh, before that time. And they lived in similar times. And he was, uh, Rav Yosef Chaim Sonnefeld was a student of the student of the Hassam Sofer, who dealt with terrible assimilation in Hungary. And the Hassam Sofer understood how to deal with it and his descendants. And Rav Chaim Sonnefeld came from that uh, background before he came to Eretz Israel. Rav Cook was an incredible genius, was raised in the Litvish yeshivas and also had a Hasidic background. Also an incredible, incredible Tamil And they both had to deal with the secular influence of people making Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael. So the books are in English. They're fascinating to read. And uh, you could see the different backgrounds that they're coming from. Like Rav Cook was like really the real, real, what we would call now the very from Mizrahi. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know if we can even use that term, but like extremely from. And Rav Yosef Chaim was the real from Haredim. Okay? So 
And they differed on issues, although they respected each other and had great love for each other. And the more you look about this, I mean, Rav, Rav Cook just loved every Jew. He loved every Jew. It was incredible, the love that he had, the confidence in every Jew, the fact that he could love all the secular farmers, and he really felt that they are a tool of bringing Mashiach. I'm not saying that Rabbi Yosef Chaim Sonfeld disagreed with him, because at certain times they would both together go out into the fields where the farmers were. But Rabbi Yosef Chaim held stronger on to the conventional Torah wisdom of the generations. Not that Chaswam Rav Kook was a, a modern type of rabbi, as certain people would like to project him as he was. That's the least, I mean, he was as firm as a mamish firm. But he, Rav Kook, he embraced certain ideas of modernity that he felt was so necessary for a Jew to survive. He felt, you know, that athletics, just being healthy was very important in the yeshiva. You know, they should be healthy. Not like, you know, the Greeks and the, you know, uh, gymnasiums and that, but, but, but a young boy should be healthy <laughs> and should know certain sciences as it uh, pertains to Yiddishkeit and should be very worldly, but what I mean worldly, in, 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 and it goes hand in hand with the Torah that he has. And he, and he felt, and that will be a way that we'll be able to connect the secular Jews, because we'll have a little bit more in common with each other. So anyway, he was a little bit more, uh, I don't know if tolerant is the word, I'm not sure which word to use. While Rabbi Yosef Chaim was, was more, we've got to be very careful about these people, because we dealt with the reformers, and we can't trust the secular Zionists at all. And Rev. Cook says, we, we could work on them. We could bring them closer. Now, so, like, what's the issue here? So Rev. Cook is like, I would say, okay, is like the Yosef of that generation. That he, Mamish, was seeing things from the other side of the prison. And he felt he could get everybody else to see them from the other side of the prison. And he would go out of his way to say, we've got to go with them, and with love we will be able to to win them over. That was his philosophy. And some of his students succeeded in that. Some of his students didn't. While Rabbi Yosef Chaim says, listen, we could try to carve them, but there's a certain point we don't want to have anything to do with them. We've got to stay away from them. They are dangerous. Which was true. Okay? At the end of the day, who is right? You know, it depends who you ask. It depends, you know, which, uh, which group you ask. You know, uh, we could say, but one, thing, but one thing I think history has shown, one thing's for sure, you can never trust the secular Israelis. At the end of the day, you can't. And at the end of the day, they will betray you, as we saw in the last, the, yeah, not this one, the election before. You know, so you got to be careful. So, so that's where you have this tension exists. And a lot of people thought, and there were many Haredim who really hated Rav Kook. But they didn't realize that Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonnefeld didn't hate Rav Kook. They had a debate 
about what's the right hashkavra, but they loved each other. But you could see how Rav Cook was very hated by the Haredi, who just didn't understand his, he's like the Yosef of that generation. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of wonderful Torah that's coming out of Mosada Rav Cook. But where are the real Gedolim coming from? I'm not saying there aren't big Talmidachim, but who are the, the big rabbis from Mosada Rav Cook? Who are they asking the Shilas to? when they have really hard questions. At the end of the day, you go to who? You went to Rav Kanievsky, you went to Rav Steinman, which was not the Mizrahi prototype. These were the ones who were just totally given over in Torah. And those are the ones, when you need the final word in halacha, that's the final word. And uh, a lot of uh, uh, hashkafic decisions that have to be made vis-a-vis the government and things like that, at the end of the day, they're the ones because they, they have that Torah that's completely unmitigated. While, of course, you want to have the other, and when Mashiach comes, then Yehuda and Yosef will be together, and then we'll have them both. But until that time, that was the challenge. So now, so now the question is, so what, what is the message for us? So it's interesting. There's one other point that many of the... So what does it mean? A person just studies Torah, and that's all he does? So there's another Gemara I didn't have space to put on. Any Gemara says like this, whoever says for me there's nothing aside from Torah study, all I do is study Torah, and I'm not going to do anything else, says it will not even possess Torah knowledge. What does this mean? With all the Torah study, but you still have to be involved with Gemilas Chesed. You still have to be involved, you don't have to have a job. And you don't have to volunteer for other mitzvahs that other people can do. If you want to be great in Torah, but you have to be able to do chesed. Because chesed is the manifestation of Torah. If you don't do chesed, then you haven't learned any Torah. You know, there's, you know, there's theory and practice. Everything about Torah is important, but there's one last part. You gotta go into the lab and you gotta Practice that Torah the way you have it with real human beings and do it in a way of chesed so that perfects that Torah that you have. And that's why even in the biggest yeshivas where they were studying Torah, the yeshivas still insisted they had to do chesed. Like, don't spend your whole day doing chesed, but it had to be involved with chesed. Because without that, it's not really the Torah. So now, interesting story there was a reform rabbi. His name was Herbert Weiner. He passed away about seven, eight years ago. He lived to be over 100. A real reform rabbi. So I think in the early 60s, he got an appointment with Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he wrote a book, this guy Weiner, he wrote a book called Nine and a Half Mystics. And he holds he's the half mystic. Okay, he had two meetings with the Lubavitcher Rebbe that were for hours. So, you know, you gotta be careful. Don't read what he wrote about the meetings totally. You gotta write what Chabad writes about the meetings totally. You don't wanna get the wrong impression. But anyway, so he asked a lot of questions. And the Rebbe B'dafka wants to spend a lot of time with him. I mean, like, you don't get to, like, he's hours and hours. They tell the story, the, uh, the secretary says, you know, they put up a timer. When you go with the Rebbe, and yeah. the bell goes off, it means the meeting's over. The bell went off five times, and the Rebbe said, I want to still speak to this guy. Uh, 
Anyway, one of the most telling comments was, and this guy didn't hold back. I mean, he respected the Rebbe, but he threw every question he wanted to ask. He says, don't you find that your students have a certain bit of naivete? You keep them so closed off when they're students. I mean, obviously later they go out on shlichus, but, and this was, this was way early, this was like in the 60s. All right, this is when it was not quite the thing it was now, obviously. So he said, don't you feel it's not correct to lead them to have such, to be so closed-minded? They're so naive. So he said something to the effect the Rebbe said, you know, we don't raise closed-minded students. We raise very open-minded students, but they are anchored in a clear foundation. When you're anchored in a clear foundation, you don't need anything else. That's an important idea. You know, it's like the muscle. A person goes to a house and they go to the, someone's washroom and they're little nosies, you know. So they check the medicine cabinet. And they see there's like no Tylenol, there's no uh, stomach things and all that. Cupboards are bare. So goes to the Balbus and says, I feel so sorry. Sorry, I can't afford any medicines. Bar Hashem, not one person is sick in my family. We eat healthy. <laughs> so it's like, what do you want? They're doing, they don't need it. So that's what the Rebbe is saying. If, you, if you're raised with clarity, then you don't need this other stuff. It's not that you're closed minded. It's not that you don't know about other things. And that's, and that's when a person then you see. So this is the point. If you have a yeshiva like Yehuda, he runs the yeshiva. Then what are you going to have? You're going to have Yosefs who can go out and they have the right directives. And you don't have to worry about them making mistakes. Number one, they're on the other side of the prison. And number two, they have the right instructions so they won't make any mistakes. When they, not that they'll be influenced to sin, but they could just make judgment mistakes so that's where you have it so so therefore as again so Yosef we will say is the ideal model of a Jewish life in a changing world but you got to be educated by Yehuda and when you're educated by Yehuda then Yosef can be the mashpia he can be the one to influence the world and not be influenced by others Yosef learned that from Yaakov he learned that Torah from Yaakov, but he took that Torah and now he himself, by feeling the other side, he could just champion that message and not be fooled by anything. But to open up the yeshiva now Mitzrayim, you have to be totally dedicated. That's why the same thing with Mordechai. At the end of the Megillah, it says that Mordechai was loved by most of his brothers, but not all. Why? Because he was knocked down a few pegs from the Sanhedrin because he had to be so busy with the king. So that, that's a critical thing. So now what, what's, so, so number one, I think we have to have a, this is to give us a better appreciation. What does it mean to have people who are dedicating their lives to study Torah and to be teaching others this, this emiss that we have? That's one thing. Number two, even let's say for us people over here, right? we're working. But one thing you can learn from this, when you are learning even though you can't make Torasa Unaso your life, it's not in the cards for us. We're not those kinds of people. Doesn't mean Hashem doesn't value us. 
But when you are learning, when you are davening, when you are saying Tehillim, when every one of those things, that hour has to be Torasa Umnaso, where there's nothing else in the world that will interrupt that study, no matter what. Which obviously means, like when you're studying, you're not going to have, except, except for Hatzala. But uh, what's different? That's Pikuach Nefesh. But anything else, there's no cell phone, there's no nothing. There's absolutely nothing. That, like what else would you do? You're just studying. When you're doing certain things, you're in shul, that's the only focus that you have. And that's why, you know, for example, like when we're davening, I, I, I very much discourage many shuls, let them make this is the way to do you have all kinds of papers of Torah and this and that my question is when are they expecting people to read it you can read it at the table you can just send it you can print it out I'm saying when are they usually read sometime during downing but when you're downing you're supposed to be downing that's good. When you're learning, it's supposed to be learning. When you're davening, it's supposed to be davening. It's Torasa umnaso, tefilasa umnaso. It's a nice thing, though, but it, it's the another time for that. So that explains why Yehuda's the one. Now the next question would be, why Yehuda and nobody else? And this really should take about 45 minutes. I'm not going to do it justice. I have five minutes. And the five minutes is... If you take the three stories of Yehuda very fast, Yehuda has three stories. Story number one, the brothers want to kill Yosef. Yehuda says, listen, what do we gain by killing him? We're not going to make any money. Let's just throw him in the pit. Uh, no, let's just sell him. Let's just sell him. Seems very cold, heartless, very, let's just do it, you know, make a little money on it. Just send him away. Ah, your father's going to be in pain. Listen, we got to do this. We got to, what can we do? He's a, he's a rebel. We got to do it. It's unfortunate collateral damage. Dad will suffer. But now in this week's parsha, he comes to Yosef and he's with the violin. How can, how can we, how can I not bring back the, his son, Binyamin? All of a sudden, he's a different man. He doesn't go with the same approach with Yosef. I mean, Yosef was the favorite son. He said, listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter he's the favorite son. We got to do what we got to do. Fine. So now you're in Egypt. Okay, I know you guaranteed you're going to bring son back, but what can you do? Benjamin was caught, so what can you do? Well, that's the law. That's the law. What can we do? But all of a sudden, he's pulling the heartstrings. Something had to have changed. What changed? The answer is there's one more story in the middle. Sir with Tamar. Sir with Tamar. And the Sir with Tamar, we all know the story. Based on the information he had, he thought she did something wrong. He was prepared to have her die. She'd be burnt and her children would be burnt. Then she slips out and says, who has the ring seal? Who has this? She doesn't say anything. Now, now is a critical point in his life. He now... He sees that everything that he decided about this woman was wrong. Hmm. So now, first of all, he has to now admit that he's wrong. Very hard for a politician to admit that they're wrong. Very hard for a leader. And even not to kill her, he could have maybe said something like, 
you know, temporary insanity will 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 just throw the case out. But mm-hmm. even though that wouldn't kill her, but it wouldn't be honest. So he decided to be honest and say, no, it's my fault. That's where leadership comes from. Leadership doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. You can make mistakes, but it means you got to admit you make the mistakes. And if you want to open up yeshiva, you have to admit that maybe you might make a mistake. That's a leader. Now, let's just take it one more step further. When he saw the story with Tamar, not only did he admit the mistake, but he came to one more understanding. He said, what do I see from this story? As sure as I was that she was guilty, I was sure and it was positive. Until this new piece of information, I had no idea. He then said, you know, my judgment could be wrong. And here, he saw clearly he was absolutely wrong. So then he took it one step further. He said, if that's what happened here, and I nearly killed a person, maybe I should go back and see what I did to my brother. Once you're shown that your deified intellect has been dethroned, you can then maybe look some other places and go back. Now he goes back and he says, well, I said, well, that's what we got to do to Yosef. And that's the way it looked like. But maybe just because I didn't find the, no one showed me the thread and no one showed me the stick, does that not mean maybe I made a mistake? And now therefore I say, you know what? Now I, I really have to, have to do tshuva. So what does Hashem do? If he wants to do tshuva, he puts you in the same situation, everything's exactly the same, and will you do tshuva? So that's what Yosef was doing the whole time with the whole charade with Binyam was to create the same thing. And now all of a sudden, who does a different man? All of a sudden, well, what could you do? What do you do? We, we made a deal and, 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 and Binyamin stole. So what could I do? I got to judge the way it is. Wait a minute. Is that how you do it? Maybe there's something you don't know. And what you have to consider is, how's your father going to feel about it? So why is Yehuda the one who's going to set up the yeshiva? Well, Yosef can't. We explained why. But Yehuda, because the most important thing is to be willing to make a mistake and if you're too afraid to make a mistake, that means you're not going to do an action either. And if you're going to do the decision based on what you think is right, and what you're wrong, you own up to it, that is real leadership. And that's why Yehuda's going to be able to open up the yeshiva. Okay. Thank you all for listening.